a podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Today, we finally, with the help of our friend Taylor Pearson, taylorpearson.me, circle back to this five-part series we're creating. The first part was about making that first $1,000 of income. You know, that's generally when you have that light bulb moment. It's like I figured out how to make entrepreneurial income. This episode is all about that next phase where it's like you're sort of making a living, but you're trying to figure out how to scale that and turn it into a real asset. It's pretty good if you can create yourself a job. Like that's better than applying for jobs. But that's not the situation we want to stay in. We want to build assets that grow over the years. So that's what we're going to talk about in today's episode. Let's do it. So we're going to roll back the clock here a little bit and go back to 2007, was it? It was 2007. We had the idea. 2008, we started selling. All right, so we're going to 2007. The two of you are sitting in San Diego, and we're going to talk about how you got out of your jobs and built a business. So we're going to start with point number one, margin. So you're sitting in San Diego. You're putting things together. How are you thinking about setting up the margins for the valet spot? This is kind of nice, Dan. I, I kind of like the, I'm just like uh, sitting back, here. relaxing, having a lemonade. <laughs> Here's the thing. You know, one of the things I think is that I'm glad that we didn't start as consultants or some kind of information or software people because having hard goods made it easy for simpleton, newbie business people like us because somewhere we read it was like you got to have great margins, especially with physical goods. You know, your margins aren't going to get any better. So set them great at the beginning. You know, I think our first piece of cat furniture, Taylor, came in at like 44 bucks landed. So we assumed we weren't that good at math. We put a little bit of buffer on there and we sold it for 200 bucks. So my heuristic has always been make sure that your cost of goods is 25% what you're selling it for. Yeah, I think that's about right. Basically, you know, you try and build in as much as you possibly can, especially in the beginning, because like you said, the costs never go down as much as you want them to go down. So there's always this promise with manufacturing, oh, if you order 100,000 of these things, then the cost is going to be much lower. doesn't generally work out. I haven't ever ordered 100,000 of anything, but I've ordered a lot more than I did in the beginning and the cost tends to stay the same or close to the same. So the trick is to build in as much margin as you possibly can at the beginning because know that you're going to come into price pressure, you're going to come into manufacturing pressure, you're going to come into competition, all that stuff. And so at the beginning, you need to set yourself up for success. And like you're saying with the consultants, you know, same thing is happening. So you're getting top line in $4,000 a month. Your cost of goods sold is $1,000. So say it takes you a month to deliver a project. You value your time at 1000 bucks. It's like, how are you going to be able to hire somebody else? You got to build in enough margin there. Yeah, that's critical, right? So like, I think that consultants get this wrong a lot. I don't think it's unfair to say your cost of goods sold if you're a consultant is your living expenses. Because it's not, you know, you say I'm 75 bucks an hour, but when's the last time you met a consultant that consistently bills that way? I mean, maybe it's just not small business stuff that I see. I see it all over the map and a lot of it's project work, right? So if you bid on a project, you bring in the 4K, it takes you four weeks to deliver, three weeks and some change. 
and you spent 2000 bucks that month living, that's not a good situation to be in. You know, you're selling your $44 piece of cat furniture for 85 bucks. And all of a sudden then you don't have money to hire people. You don't have money to market that product. You don't have money to build the business. A lot of people would say, you know, 50% is great. I spent 2000, but I made 4000, you know, that's a good chunk of change. But the problem is that there's not a lot of long-term thinking in there a lot of times. So you figure out, you know, in the beginning of your business that you can get away without paying insurance. You figure out that you don't have to pay all the taxes that you might supposed to have to pay. You figure out that you don't have to hire anybody, you know, all these things, right? When you're operating a business at scale, all these things come back. So now, you know, we're paying insurance. Let's assume it took you four weeks, three and a half weeks to deliver that project. Well, how long did it take you to close it? and to prospect for it and to, and to build that pipeline that brought in that project. So all of a sudden, you know, you're a week into the next month spending that profit, trying to build your own product, trying to hustle something up on the side or whatever, and boom, you gotta be right back into the consulting gig. It's a hamster wheel. I mean, if you're making 4,000 bucks a month, you gotta get the living expenses down to 1,000, I think. Or you gotta get the top line up. Or you gotta get the top line up, yeah. You gotta get the top line up, but you gotta have the equation right in the first place. So I've seen this before too, where you keep getting the top line up, but your cost structure stays the same or it even gets worse. So you gotta know essentially when you have a flawed business model. And I think what we're saying here is, you know, you wanna shoot for four times at least in the beginning, because that gives you some padding to go up. If you're finding yourself in a situation where you have to spend 2,500 bucks a month in order just to bring in your 5,000 in project, it's probably a case that you're not enough like Dilbert. Yeah, how does Dilbert operate, Taylor? You uh, explain this to me. The concept behind Dilbert is there's only one guy, right? So Scott Adams is the creator of Dilbert. I think he's worth like $75 million. His story is kind of inspiring. He talks about like all the businesses he failed at before he finally fell into Dilbert. But the model behind Dilbert is IP, right? He's got intellectual property because he is Dilbert. So if you want to syndicate Dilbert, you have to pay Scott Adams. There's no one else. I love that he, if he actually said that he was stumbling on businesses and Dilbert's a business because most people would consider that like an art. I love it that he considers that his business. And I think more artists should consider it their business. Well, he turned into 75 million, so he didn't do too bad. If you're starting as a consultant to get your first entrepreneurial income, the way to get more like Dilbert is to focus your consulting and to build IP, right? So the classical, you know, what is the IP of a classic consultant? It's like, well, I'm a really smart person and I really help people out. Well, that's not IP, right? IP is... I help people with X specific thing time and time again, and now that becomes part of the DNA that's my business. So I think that probably as well into our second point. Oh, so let's take it to a specific example. Let's say you're talking to Mr. Consultant, or he's making four grand a month doing, let's say, podcast editing. He's paying himself two grand a month for living expenses. How does he get from two grand down to one grand, or even better, how does he get from four grand up to eight grand so he can start scaling it out? What do you say to him? Well, the first thing that I'd say is probably try and get your margins better. Try and get that ratio better. So figure out if you actually have to pay yourself 2000 If you're stuck at 2000 okay, then you got to find a way to charge more for your service, I think. Figure out a way to go to your customers and maybe you have less customers and charge them twice as much to try and get that ratio back to where it should be. You also got to, you know, 
ask yourself the tough question is like, is it a service that theoretically you could get that kind of margin on? Maybe you kind of like wrote stuff like that, isn't it? If there's no feasible way that you can go up market fast, it might make sense to like not try to make it a winner. That's the cool thing about, you know, if you're just at square one, you still got, you don't have any entrenched interests. You can just go for something that makes more sense. I think people tend to get stuck in like what they feel like they know, what they feel like they value. And it's much better in my mind to look out at the marketplace and say, look, you know, like people really freaking value SEO audits. I can learn how to do that in a couple of weeks and I can get huge margins on it. So why am I going to write SEO articles, which are something that is very low margin business? One of the dangers in this position, Taylor, that you just pointed out is that you can actually survive no problem and your life probably looks pretty good. It's like eating, you know, one cheese in an hour or taking one shot an hour. It's like, it's okay until it catches up to you on the eighth hour. And then you're like, oh crap, now I'm in trouble. You know, you can live for a long time as a consultant doing the two to one ratio. But I think eventually if you want to scale up and you want to improve your life and you want to hire people, you're going to be trapped. And the sooner you can do the math, the better, because you don't want to end up building this business for three years and then find out, oh crap, I can't hire anybody or, oh crap, when I hire my sixth person, my margins just go to shit and now I'm really in trouble. So doing the math on the front end is really important. Right. So you're trying to figure out how to turn your two to one consulting into something with IP where all of a sudden your margins get to the four to one. Taylor, I know you're, you're the mod here, right. but I'm going crazy. So you got to jump in when I go overboard. But I want to talk about the second point, which is pipeline, because it's, it's a big, a similar and a big mistake that I've seen people making. So there's two elements of any new business, or you can look at this dichotomy between, say, sowing and reaping or sales and capacity we'll call the sales end, you know, the pipeline, when you're going out and generating leads, generating interest, you're closing business for your company. And then you've got the operational and the capacity side where you're trying to deliver on those projects. And what I see happening all the time among people that can't get from the build yourself a job to build yourself a business phase is that they err on the side of capacity. Think of it like a red line in a car. When you get up to that, you have too many leads coming in, you're freaking out, and you're like, you know what? I'm just going to shut off that pipeline and I'm going to take care of these customers. I love the instinct. Of course, you got to take care of your customers, but it's, it's the wrong instinct if you want to build an asset and build a business. Okay, So what I think you need to do is learn how to shift and go way down in RPMs. And it's going to be hard, right? What most consultants do is they go back to the 6,000 and it's, hey, I'm still cruising along. Just like Ian said, I can do this for years. But I think the people that have the vision and the trust that they're building something more long-term, they're willing to go way down in RPMs, hire somebody for the capacity side, and stay focused on the pipeline side themselves. I think this is something that like, we always sort of, I don't know, felt intuitively, and we always did it since day one. And I think it's important. That's why I wanted to bring it up. I'll forgive you for jumping in this time. You know, it's not like I'm on your show or anything. Okay, so take that metaphor back, or take that analogy back to the valet spot. So you start selling some valet podiums, you start selling some cat furniture, you know the margins are good. What happens then? How do you fill up the pipeline? How do you structure the business to focus on the pipeline? Well, if your margins are good and our margins were good at the beginning, then you can spend a lot of time in that business building the pipeline. And so for us, that meant cold calling, that meant emails, hitting the pavement, all that stuff, you know, to figure out, hey, how how far can we push this thing? Because you know, we were having months, it's like, oh, we're making $5,000 a month. Now we're making $20,000 a month. You know, what's next? And all, all the time, like our cost structure on the back end is holding up 
to that. So I think for us, it meant that we could really push the top line number and focus on how big we could grow it and not have to worry too much about the back end. Because like I said, we had figured out that cost structure in the beginning and we knew it was solid. There's also, I mean, I have an archetype in my head of the entrepreneur who's like really pipeline focused. They're just jam and jam and jam and going out. I mean, we get in our heads about what uh, successful delivery means, you know, because you have, I mean, a lot of assumptions about that. It's incredible. Like Ian and I still surprise ourselves every time about like what successful delivery means. I think we've told a story on the show about our first batch of valet podiums. You didn't put a triangle bracket on the wheels. Come on, man. I was a junior designer at the time. I hadn't fully considered everything. You can imagine like all he had was like this, what do you call it? I can't remember all the technical terms anymore. I'm I mean, it was just basically, it was like the wheels of this thing were bolted into a piece of tin foil, sheet metal. It didn't have any gusseting or, or bracing or anything like that. Super bonehead move. We had to avoid this situation as hard goods entrepreneurs because look, Look, if we would have sat on that egg, we would be back in a job for years. Like, I mean, it, was, it would have been a massive financial disaster. So instead, we tested the assumption that everybody needed to be using these wheels and that everybody was going to break them and whatever. And we shipped these products to people. And it turns out that there was a lot of other things that they valued about that podium that didn't come down to the one thing that we couldn't get our minds off of because that's just where we were focused, right? We saw something that other people may not have seen. And I think with consulting, with information, with software, it's really easy to get in your head about that stuff and sit on that operational side rather than going out and pre-selling your next container. It's like, you know, sir from California Parking Company, I understand that you're not, we fixed your problem, are you ready to order the next batch? Even though we're still trying to, you know, you're always focused on that pipeline. I mean, and that's what's gonna be the lifeblood of your business. If you take that accelerator off, I mean, that's where the innovation comes, that's where the cash flow comes, that's where the growth comes. That's where you need to be focused as the entrepreneur during the first few years of the business. So one of the reasons I think a lot of consultants go on to the productized service model is because, well, it can be a lot more profitable. And part of the reason it's a lot more profitable is because the margins are a lot more legible. What do you guys think about that? Right, because it's productized. You can clearly, you know how much time it's going to take you to get someone to do it. So it's easy to figure out the margins. Well, you can productize anything. That's the whole discussion about living costs and being a consultant. I just think it's like the right framework to think about things. Like there's always a cost of delivery. Sometimes it just takes you a little bit more spreadsheet room to figure it out, right? But I think understanding what your cost of delivery is critical to understanding whether you're going to be able to find some leverage or whether you're going to constantly be on the entrepreneurial hamster wheel, you know, which happens a lot. Right. So that the first point is you build the business around you being able to spend all your time filling up the pipeline. But what did filling up the pipeline look for y'all at first? Was it like you down, got a scraped VA spreadsheet on Odesk, a valet companies and cold call them? Or was it AdWords or was it SEO? Like how did the pipeline start filling up? And then at what point did you have the confidence to take that pipeline and go higher? It was all the things that you just said there, Taylor. It really was. It was scrape VA list. It was SEO. It was AdWords a little bit later on. And the confidence really came from the customers. Talking to these people, figuring out what they wanted to see, having them give you their money, you know, turning that money into another container, and just trying to estimate just about how big the market was. You know, we were hearing from guys, oh, I buy 10 of these a year. And some other guys would say, oh, I buy 50 of these a year. 
It's like, wow, there's some money in this market. And so it was just having the confidence to to understand that, A, we could compete with our product. That was after our first production run after we sorted it out. A, we could compete with the product and B, we could be a leader in this marketplace. So what was your timeline? You started putting things together in 2007. You started selling in 2008. How long until you got to your first hire? It was definitely too long. I'd say about a year and a half in, finally made the decision. It was the same decision that we made when Dan said, Ian, you got to quit your job so you can focus on product development. It was just like not enough hours in the day. And we figured out specifically what would grow that company. So what grows that company is new product development. And that's been since day one. That's the reason why that company grows. I mean, it grows from you know, the market growing, it grows from acquiring more customers. But the number one way that we see big ups in the graph is through product development. So coming out with new products. And so when I initially quit my job, it was so I could focus on product development. I did product development and then I got tied up in sales and warehouse and all this other stuff that encompasses the business. And then we sat down again, we said, okay, I think it's time to hire again because we've got a bunch of product development that needs to get done. It's not happening. So it was almost like a plateau, if you will, you know, we developed these products that were doing well, but we needed to take it to the next level. And that type of business, we had to go again at product development. Were there like hard numbers at which you hired or was it like a gut instinct, like this has taken off and we're the bottleneck, so we just got to go higher? Well, you can go back and listen to some sketchy uh, tropical MBA lifestyle business podcast episodes from the beginning and hear our thoughts on on that. It wasn't hard numbers. I mean, I remember, Dan, if you don't remember this, I would be surprised, but months basically should we hire should we not hire should we hire should we not hire and both of us were essentially living on rice and beans but in this type of business it's capital intensive so always trying to navigate inventory and things like that and so trying to balance the cost of goods sold with a hire was not easy for us but we went back and forth for months trying to decide if we had the cash flow to hire somebody specifically the cash flow and dan had a side hustle at this point or was doing consulting still yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's an interesting part of it, too, is like I believe in this building business process so much that I paid Alistair more than I made for years from the company because I wanted to build a company. And Alistair was the first employee. Yeah. So we paid him, you know, like real salary in California stuff. And that was way more than I don't know what you were getting paid at the time, Ian, but <laughs> I wasn't getting paid anything. It was more than you and I were both getting paid. I remember when you started paying me, I was super pumped about that. You still don't pay me very much, by the way. That's something we should revisit. But <laughs> I just believe that like if this business could not support somebody running it. Like, you know, we're tossing leads and creativity and like kind of this raw material into the machine. But if somebody can't coordinate the machine to like turn that energy into bottom line profits, then I don't want it. You know, that's not something that I want in my life. I don't want to be constantly having to be pedaling the bike or whatever. I don't want to have to be running the thing. And so it was really important to me that like, hey, the whole reason I got out of my job is because I don't want to do all this stuff every day. You know, this random stuff of running the thing. I want to make sure that I'm building something that other people can run. So that way I can do like Cam Collins said, he quoted Seth Godin saying, we should be creating and connecting. And like, yeah, I did have consulting income streams that were super leveraged. That's a whole nother story in itself. That's a good one, by the way. I don't know if I've told that one, but that allowed me to stay creating and connecting. And if I would have taken Alistair's salary, I would have been sitting in that dungeon running the machine and I'd rather be out there creating it. So what's the takeaway here? Like, what would you say to the consultant? He's got to the same point. He got his margins. He's working on his pipeline. 
start paying the employee more than he's paying himself. Optimize for interesting, like you said. You had it in a note somewhere. Think about those yeah. situations. Like, what's interesting? Like, let's put Alistair into this or, you know, somebody talented like him and see if it works. Let's spin this top. Like, let's, you know, fire up the engine and see what happens versus, you know what? I'm just going to grind it out and I'm going to make more calls and I'm going to do more of this and do more of that. And it's like, that, you know, doesn't work for me. Like, I want to find a machine. I want to find an asset that runs without me. And again, I'm not saying I just walked away from the thing. Like I was at the time. So like, why aren't you there, you know, on the phone talking to customers and stuff? Well, because I was building a, a marketing team in the Philippines. At the time, now <laughs> people would laugh. At the time, it was an innovative SEO strategy. We had an innovative web platform. We were out, <laughs> we were out, I know you're laughing at me. We were out competing everybody. I was optimizing for interesting because I knew what picking up the phone with a customer was like, but I didn't know what SEO was. I didn't know what the web was. I didn't know what the Philippines was. I didn't know all this stuff. So I felt like that was the upside and I wanted to be where the upside was. Well, in that industry, it still is innovative. Back to the advice though, like project delivery is important. It's critical. It's got to happen, but it's not where the interesting stuff's happening. Good thing there was two of us because not all of us could do interesting work like that. So. <laughs> but you're right though, Dan, to say, you know, what we were doing, we were out hustling everybody on the SEO side and on the marketing side. These guys in this industry didn't know anything about that. And that was a huge advantage for us, getting that leg up and getting into the Philippines and having that cost structure. Our cost structure was far lower than these guys because we had teams overseas. And so it was actually critical to our success in the beginning that we had that kind of dichotomy between me and you. And how long after you hired Alistair did you start recruiting in the Philippines or those at the same time? That was going on at the same time. So Dan was over in the Philippines building out that team and I was building the team in California. So it was happening at the same time. We knew that we needed marketing chops and then I knew that I needed help so I could get back to product development. Okay, we had good margins, Taylor, but that taking the shots analogy, Ian, we were taking shots for two or three years and like we didn't know how we were going to feel about it. It was still a little bit unclear there, you know, how things were going to work out. Yeah, to circle back around to you and Taylor's point about optimizing for interesting, I think that we were doing a lot of that. And I think that the bottom line is like a lot of people forget about that entrepreneurial moment. Like you had an entrepreneurial moment when you decided to quit your job and become a consultant. And then all of a sudden you had a job for maybe a long time. And then you got to have another entrepreneurial moment at, at some point. You got to say, you know what, I'm not going to work this job anymore. I'm going to make sure that my margins are tight and I'm going to go out and hire people and I'm going to focus on something else or I'm going to focus on building this business even bigger. You got to have several entrepreneurial moments. You can't just have that one in the beginning. And I think that that's where people get stuck. Taylor, let me ask you a question. How much do you think having fun plays into all this? Like you met all these people now. You met hundreds of successful entrepreneurs. How much of them are hating life? Is there a correlation with doing the fun stuff. Because I feel like that's one thing when I look back at Ian and I were just, yeah, we want to do what's right. But also it's like, you know, given two paths in the woods, I want to go down the one where there's a keg at the end of it. I want something fun to go do. <laughs> there's definitely an element of like the grind, right? But I think talking about optimizing for interesting, I've called it like bootstrapper secrets. So Peter Thiel's got his concept of like the great secret he built PayPal around was like you should be able to transfer money on the internet. But like all these bootstrap businesses have like these little mini secrets built in. So it's like I can build a development team in the Philippines or we can manufacture in China or we can innovate on product development in the valet market. And like those ended up being the sustainable competitive advantages for that business like to this day. Or Ian like deeply understands cats 
in a way that others don't. We got a couple right. more points here. We're getting long in a tooth here, guys. This I is- understand it so much that mine is howling right now and scratching the couch. <laughs> All right, so that brings us to our fifth point, living broke. So the company started putting things together in 2007, started selling in 2008. How long were you living broke for? Like, what was the timeline on plowing everything back into the business, and how did you think about that? Wow, I guess this is a Ian question. He's got a uh, reputation so for that, all- though, but I put my min account up against anybody's. <laughs> first idea about living broke is I think it's a good life skill. I think everybody that can live broke is going to be all right because no matter what happens with your business, no matter how much capital you've got tied up or whatever, if you can live broke, you're going to be okay. You're going to be able to weather the storm. So first of all, I think great life skill, living broke, totally underrated. How long were we living broke? Well, in our business, like I said before, very capital intensive. You're constantly having to reinvest your profits back into your inventory. And sometimes you pay taxes on those profits and you still have to reinvest in your inventory. And so, you know, there was years, Taylor, where we didn't see any money and we had to reach a certain level of scale. And for everybody, that's kind of different. But, you know, it wasn't honestly until maybe three or four years ago that we actually really started getting paid in our business. This circles back to the first point, though, for me, which is you have to think of it like a business, right? So let's say you have a services business that generates, I don't know, half a million bucks a year in sales. If you're making 150 grand a year, you are the biggest giant pimple of a line item on that P&L. You know, if you take that to a third party who's looking at businesses, they would say, what the heck is this $150,000 person doing? Are they coming, you know, laying gold eggs? Like, what is this person doing here? I'm not saying don't make 150 grand if you don't want to do it. I'm saying that if you want to think about it like a business and you want to scale it, a lot of times it's like keeping that proportion right. And so the proportions that exist early on in the game ought to continue to exist if you want to continue to scale your business. And that's what makes it more interesting, I think. And and that was one of the things I noticed, I think, before we started working together, the business I was in was exactly what you were describing. So, like, successful services business, it could never scale up because, you know, we could have hired two more people. I think he's still doing well, but it's kind of still on that same trajectory. Taylor, have we told the Ben Kruger podcast story on this? It comes back to either explicitly or implicitly, like, the difference between a job and a business is a business is, like, legible process that repeat and scale and a job is like yeah this is all messed up you know like take a broom and clean it up you know and and kind of work your way through it right that's a job there's also a mindset aspect to it of like are you trying to build an asset like you could write an sop for productized consulting and then just like execute on that yourself and just have it be like a profitable consultancy the story behind bin is good because Basically, cold emailed you a couple times, cold emailed Dan saying, let me edit your podcast for free, and then came to me. I was editing the podcast at the time. You said no. You referred him over to me, and I wanted to do it because I wanted to test out the SOP. Ben is a great case study in focusing on the pipeline, by the way, because so this is Ben from Authority Engine. We're talking about him without his, I feel like a gossip show a little bit, but Ben's an amazing entrepreneur, super talented. And he's also, he doesn't take no for an answer in like the best possible way. Like a lot of times, you know, people are like, you know, how do I get an apprenticeship or how can I get you to do something for me? And it's like, you know, you got to hear the no a lot of times, you know, you got to keep going around in a different way. And Ben did that. He's like, I was like, no, I don't want you to do it. And he's like, well, you know, what if I did it this way? It's like, no, I don't want you to do it. It's like, well, where are you going to be this weekend? It's like, I don't know. I was like, well, 
I'm just going to write the, what's, what's Taylor's email address? You know what I mean? And like, honestly, like you keep working it and you get to a yes. You guys remember when Clay Collins quoted Dave McClure saying, welcome to the NFL. The reason as an entrepreneur, if you want to build a scalable business, you stay on pipeline is because that's the NFL. Like that's a tough stop. Getting to the yes. Am I making sense here? Yeah, you're making sense. To circle around to Taylor's story about the guy that you used to work for, Taylor, I've met that guy a million times, you know? That guy doesn't have any plans to scale his business, but the interesting thing about that guy is most of the time he doesn't have any plans for an exit either. Somebody comes in, like you said, Dan, they look at that line item, $100,000. They look at all the IP that that guy has. You think, well, this is the only guy that can run this business. The clients talk directly to him. He's super wrapped up in this thing. There's no way I'm going to buy this business. What am I buying here? A lot of times they'll come in, they'll say, okay, yeah, you do have an interesting customer list. We'd like to buy that from you, but we're only going to give you half as much as you're asking and you're going to have to work for us for the next two years or three years. I see that happen a lot. There's hidden value there then in going off and doing things that are interesting and tangential to the primary thing. Like once you get started getting that momentum, and this is like actually more advanced stuff. Maybe we shouldn't be talking about it in the second part of the series. But you're right. I've seen this because we used to do some like acquiring and merger stuff. And you'd see this all the time in like sub $1 million businesses is that it's just absolutely this dynamo that's like just putting it on their shoulders and running the whole thing. You don't want anything to do with that. So even, yeah, if you're able to make a good salary for a couple years, that's only just a couple years and you worked for it the whole time. I always remember this conversation I had with David Heidenberger. It's like, would you rather make 5,000 bucks a month as a consultant or $1,000 a month selling ebooks? And to me, it's a no brainer. It's a no brainer. I can't imagine the person that would want five grand. And the truth is, is that a lot of people want it because they want to go to the restaurant that month or whatever. And I get it. That's cool. But if you have the restaurant now, you might not own the restaurant five years from now. Final thoughts for me on this living broke thing. You know, I think we're advocating taking less salary so you can reinvest back into your business. The only way that that really works is if the asset is growing. So I think everybody should be conscious of that. Don't take less salary if you're not growing the asset because then you're not making money in either direction. So the idea here is to take less salary so you can reinvest so it increases the value of your asset. If you're not increasing the value of your asset, this is not a worthwhile endeavor. It's a good point. And, you know, the personal income trap, it doesn't get any easier as you go along. You know, it's going to be just as hard to stay focused when you're making $500,000 a year in sales as when you went from 2000 to 1000 a month in living expenses because you realize you need better margin on those projects you're delivering. Boom. Well, I've enjoyed having you guys on the show. It's been fun. <laughs> Thanks for having us, Taylor. <laughs> Thank you, Taylor. Maybe, maybe we'll do it again. Taylor Pearson from taylorpearson.me. This one will be at tropicalmba.com slash build a job. We'll have some links. James Altucher interviewed the Dilbert guy. What's his name? Scott Adams. Scott Adams. I thought that was a really nice interview. I enjoyed that. So we'll link to that and uh, some other things that we mentioned, including since this episode will be, you know, we're doing this introduction series to some of our key ideas We'll link to the, all the other episodes that we've done that are like related to the concepts herein. So if you're interested in things like process, building a team, or living broke like Ian, we'll link up to further TMBA listening. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next Thursday morning. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.